What's up, fam? This is Sid with Push Black, excited to bring you a bonus episode of Black History Year while our host, Jay, gets ready for season four, coming out later this year. Now, as you've likely heard Jay say, this show connects you to the history, thinkers, and activists who are left out of mainstream conversations. It's why we created this platform, to give space and uplift those voices. And it's also why one question we always ask our guests is, what does Black liberation look like to you? And when we ask this, an amazing thing happens. Each guest has a different answer. Now, it sounds simple, but it's really fascinating that each guest visualizes a different way to achieve freedom. Now, some might think, well, if there are so many ideas on how we can progress, how can any progress actually happen? And it's a fair question. But we at Push Black believe there's no one way or right way to arrive at Black liberation. We can apply different strategies even to reach this shared goal. And just like Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. said in his season three interview, we have to heighten the contradictions. And we agree with that because when we collectively begin to learn the diverse perspectives within our community and begin to understand each other's viewpoints, Black liberation is in our reach. So this episode, we're featuring some of the most thought-provoking and inspiring responses to this question as we all continue to explore what freedom for our people is and what it can be. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. What does Black liberation look like to you and how does your work help advance that cause? Well, liberation begins in the mind. As Dr. Carter G. Woodson informed us in his landmark publication, The Miseducation of the Negro, when you control a person's thinking, you don't have to worry about their actions. And people of African ancestry throughout the world have been controlled through the process of us being separated from our history and culture, and then given a false narrative, false identity, and our memories of the past have been erased. So we've been socialized to believe that Africans have made no contributions to history, culture, civilization, and that for us to be Americans is the best thing that has ever happened to us. That information is deficient. It does not tell the true story of who we are. So once I became aware that I had been miseducated, and that was in 1977, three years after I graduated from college, three years after I thought I was ready for the world, I realized how ill-prepared I was. And then since 1977, I've been actively engaged in the process of re-educating myself. And that is focusing my attention on acquiring what I now refer to as forbidden knowledge, information, historical, cultural, spiritual information, which has intentionally been withheld from us in order to keep us comfortable living at a dysfunctional level. So my career has been dedicated to doing firsthand research, primary research, telling the story of who African people were before our enslavement so that we can have greater options as to how we choose to move through life. So Black liberation is about knowing who you are and then applying that knowledge to determine who you are going to be in the future. And we have no time to waste. Our backs are against the wall as a people. We currently are facing more challenges than at any point in my lifetime. And 
Those challenges require profound changes on our part, and those changes begin first in our minds with our thoughts, and then thought precedes speech. With correct thoughts, we now know how to speak correctly, and once we master the art of speaking, we then can bring things into manifestation, which will allow us to create our own realities. What does Black liberation look like to you, and how does your work contribute to that? One of the books that I I wrote uh, that came out two years ago now is called Pleasure Activism, and I I bring that in because my vision of Black liberation has shifted over the years. It used to just be like I just want us to be free, you know, I want us to be free, but now I want even more than that. I want us to be able to really touch into our joy and our sense of belonging and our sense of connection and safety without having to look over our shoulders, without having to wonder if anyone can see us or if the police are about to stop us or harm us. Um, I really want that level of, of Black resilience to be something we're not holding against the harm that's caused to us, but something that's just able to be. So that's one of my big, big views of like what I want Black liberation to look like. And a lot of it is measured by the children in my life and the children in the world. I want children to be able to look at adults and see liberated and joyful Black adults around them who can parent them well and love them well and caretake for them well because we're not under duress of trying to survive a system that is constantly trying to kill us. And my work on that, you know, I wrote Pleasure Activism. I studied Audre Lorde. I studied Octavia Butler, and I'm I'm constantly trying to write and invite people into conversations where we talk about what's the future we actually want, and not just what's the best we can negotiate from people who have consistently oppressed us, um, but what do we actually want for our people? What is our vision? What is the vision for Black people and African diaspora people that predates our trauma and that will take us beyond our trauma? What is Afrofuturism? As it was originally articulated, the idea of Afrofuturism is like Black people thinking about projecting themselves into writing ourselves into the future. And it was actually named by a scholar who was not Black, um, Mark Derry, um, but was looking at the pattern that was emerging of this particular kind of writing from a bunch of Black authors in that time. And I want to name uh, Nnedi Okorafor, who is a Nigerian-American science fiction writer, and she talks about African futurism, that there's also other ways, other places to look at the future that are not rooted in the U.S. experiment, which I always find comforting to just remember that there's so many people who share our lineage, who have had different experiences, and what we're trying to write is a future that's broad enough for all of us. But that's the basics of Afrofuturism. You know, when I talk about Afrofuturism, what I mean is there are Black people in the future and we are self-determining what that means, like how we will occupy the future in a way that is powerful for us. What does Black liberation mean to you? It means that we all have a deep and profound understanding of what brought us here, of the history that has created the contemporary landscape of our society, that we have a strong sense of everything that has been done to us and that we have done to overcome it. And ultimately, that we are able to build and live in a world that is not predicated on 
that is not entangled in any form of systemic oppression in which we just get to be. We get to be in the way that other people get to be and just live in the ways that other groups of people just get to live without the weight of that history being a sort of omnipresent force on our backs. So tell us about how your work contributes to getting us closer to that vision that you have of Black liberation. I recently wrote a book that will be out on June 1st uh, called How the Word is Passed. And the book is a, a nonfiction book that explores how different places across the country reckon with or fail to reckon with their relationship to the history of slavery. And so in it, I go to different places across the country, plantations, prisons, monuments, memorials, houses, cities, neighborhoods, and try to understand to what extent are they confronting their relationship to this history? To what extent are they running from it? And to what extent are they doing something in between? For example, one of the places that I go is Angola prison. And Angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country. It is built on top of a former plantation. 75% of the people held there are Black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences. And like I said, it, it's built on top of, of what used to be a plantation. And what I tell folks is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany, and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the vast majority of people held there were Jewish, that place would be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist. People will be protesting outside of it every single day if it did exist, and rightfully so. Like we, it runs counter to every notion of justice and, and morality and ethics that we purport to believe in. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country in which the vast majority of the people held there are Black men serving life sentences who go out into fields of what used to be a plantation and pick crops and plow the fields while someone watches over them on horseback with a rifle over their shoulder as they work for virtually no pay. And so part of what I'm thinking about when I go to a place like Angola is what are the ways that white supremacy not only enacts violence against our bodies, but also collectively numbs us to certain types of violences that should otherwise be wildly unacceptable. What does Black liberation look like to you? Well, for me, Black liberation is a combination of us gaining political power in all the senses of the word political, meaning self-determination, control of our own lives, and combining that with economic justice and economic democracy. So I don't believe we can gain real liberation if we don't have economic justice practiced through economic democracy structures. So that's, for me, liberation is political and economic power, the power to enact self-determination in all aspects of our lives, but in particularly economic liberation and economic justice. Dr. Coakley, what does Black liberation mean to you? Black liberation to me, and I, and I say this from the vantage point of, of a Black psychologist and, and as an African-centered Black psychologist, Black liberation, simply put, is Black people having consciousness that has been freed from 
Eurocentric colonization. So what I mean by that is, as Black folks, as, as African people, we have been socialized to think in ways that undermine who we are as a people. And part of it is because we have not appreciated what it means to be Black, what it means to be African, and we have adopted some ways and mindsets that really are not healthy for our people. And so for me, Black liberation from a from a psychological vantage point means the unshackling of the mind and shedding and ridding ourselves of those harmful and really sort of anti-Black, anti-African ways of thinking. So when you say unshackling the mind, how does your work contribute to that? So, you know, I follow in the huge footsteps of Black psychologists, you know, Wade Nobles, you know, the person who was my direct mentor, or as we refer to in Black psychology, Jagna, Asa Hilliard, Naeem Akbar. What I've done as a Black psychologist is, one, try to continue to sort of validate that there is such a thing as, as a Black psychology. That might sound really basic and simple, but you would be surprised to hear how many people even question the existence of a black psychology. You know, this idea that we have our own internal, intrinsic and cultural ways of being and thinking and doing things that we need to understand and that we need to really sort of validate and to sort of embrace. So what I've done in my work is continue the legacy, particularly of, of Dr. Asa Hilliard. Dr. Hilliard, as I'm sure you know, was a tireless defender of Black students. He was an educational psychologist, an Egyptologist. He was someone that always defended Black children and Black students as being brilliant, as being capable, and as really needing our belief in them. My work has, in many ways, just been a reflection of and an extension of his lifelong work. And so much of my work has looked at issues of identity, understanding the importance and the role of identity for Black students and how it shapes and informs their approach towards education. My work has challenged the idea that Black students don't value school and don't value education. So when I wrote my book, The Myth of Black Anti-Intellectualism, it was really to disrupt this narrative out there that Black people and Black students in particular do not value school. And one, the empirical evidence is overwhelmingly um, against that that idea. But historically, and, and what I sort of say in the book is, is that historically, that's a problematic narrative to, to say that Black people don't value school. When you think about all the things that, that people did to better our lives and to sort of sacrifice for the kids and all the things that we've been through historically as a people to try to fight to make sure that our kids had an education that was worthy of them, that was not reflective of, you know, sort of the biases and the sort of lack of resources that tend to sort of be a part of our educational experiences. And so for me, I think that what my biggest contribution or one of my biggest contributions has been to continue Dr. Asa Hilliard's work of being a tireless defender of Black students, by extension to Black culture, and to sort of you know make the case that we as a people do very much value school, we very much value education, but it just can't be any education. We will reject, understandably so, those experiences that are mired in Eurocentric thought that devalue our historical reality and that devalue and minimize the contributions that we have made to the flow of history. If we aren't getting the type of education that will promote Black liberation, then you shouldn't be surprised if you see some attitudes that question the necessity of this Eurocentric education. Candace, 
What does Black liberation look like to you? Black liberation to me is more about what it feels like. It's what I don't have to worry about. I was telling a friend of mine not too long ago, actually, they were asking if I felt that my kids would want to get into the work that I do if they wanted to get into politics. And I said, you know what? I got into politics because I wanted to make the world different for my kids. I hope that my kids don't feel like that responsibility is all on them. And I think the freedom to have to choose when we exert our power and when we show up in spaces that are not necessarily for us, that we get to choose when we do that, I think that is liberation. That it doesn't feel like a constant and daily mandate for us. Doesn't mean that the work is ever going to stop, but at least we have a moment to rest and to think and to be ourselves. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're hoping that the work that you and others are doing will get to a point where it's not as urgent for future generations. Right. Although I think in the ways that our communities are built, I think we'll always have some element of that, but not for survival. And right now it feels like it's for survival. I would like it to be the work that we do is a value add. I like that. So let's get into it. How is the work that you're doing currently contributing to your vision of Black liberation and political freedom? I ran for elected office. It was never on my list of things that I wanted to do with my life. And I got in politics because I wanted to make sure that my kids grew up in a community that they felt they were safe, that they felt that they could return to after, you know, they go away from for college or whatever, come back. Look, I always have a place at home. And part of that is because my personal story and my personal relationship with Memphis, how I wish I were home. And I, you know, I definitely honor all of those folks who stayed home or returned home. But that wasn't my path. And I want selfishly for my kids to be able to say, you know, Hyattsville or Prince George's County is always home for me. And as I've been doing this work, I've realized, as mayor at least, I realize that my kids certainly have that peace of mind right here at home. And I asked my son when it was shortly after Ahmaud Arbery was murdered. I asked my son, you know, if he felt safe. And he said, I feel safe here but not necessarily everywhere else. And when faced with trying to grow our Black Party and still you know, completing my term as mayor, I made the really difficult decision to step down as mayor because I said I want to devote my time to growing this organization because what good is it that I create this safe space for my kid right here at home, but his world of safety is limited only to where he grew up. And it's important to make spaces outside of Hyattsville, outside of Maryland, outside of areas that we would consider liberal or progressive enclaves, that we extend that work further. What does Black liberation look like to you from your perspective as an environmental activist? Liberation does mean freedom of choice, freedom to think, freedom to dream, freedom to achieve, freedom to be able to live in a very clean and healthy environment. It would be great if all of us as Black people lived in spaces where the air that we breathe was clean, 
where our children had the ability to drink clean, fresh water, to go to school and be educated. And when I say educated, I mean educated in a way that they can think and break out of barriers and patterns. Uh, liberation means the ability to say what you really want to do in your life and go ahead and pursue it and um, and be able to achieve it without being put in a box or having barriers put around you. So it's being able to dream as big as we want to dream and achieve it without all these strictures that are put around us to prevent us uh, from doing it. You know, the freedom to, to move around space, to move in time, and to be able to just accomplish what we can to the best of our abilities. And right now, most of us can't because all around the world, there's so many things that are designed to prevent us from being able to do these things. So what does Black liberation mean to you? For me, it's a historical term that talks about our fight for freedom and liberation. And what I mean by that is we as a people who were brought to these shores have been subjugated, oppressed, obviously enslaved. And to this day, we suffer from oppression, even if sometimes it's hard for some of us to recognize it to the same degree. And so for me, when we talk about the idea of liberation, what we're talking about is Black folks controlling every and any institution, organization, any economic, social organization, even that has anything to do with the daily lives of Black folks. We as a people must control institutions and organizations, not only in our community, but throughout the larger diaspora. Otherwise, we are people who are controlled by others. And if you are controlled by other people, other folks, whether they are well-meaning or not, will tell you what time of day it is. They'll tell you how you should act, what you should learn, how you should view history. And in the end, you'll notice that folks who are oppressive to you even if they smooth that out a little bit, they will continue to keep the power controls. They will continue to keep controls over economics. They'll continue to keep controls over schooling. And even if they put a few of your folks in some positions, that still doesn't mean that the dominant and subservient situation has changed. So for me, liberation can only be thought about in a sense of Black people controlling institutions and organizations. And then a little bit more is that those institutions and organizations themselves cannot be coercive and cannot be dominated by a few over the many. So I think when I think about our liberation, particularly our struggle here in the United States, and I think this is true across the diaspora and in Africa, we have to think about anti-capitalist structures. We have to think about communal structures. We have to think about collective structures, things that disperse wealth and knowledge across our communities so that folks have the ability to control their lives and are not dependent on a few, no matter what that few look like to, again, tell those folks what they should be doing and how they should be doing it, but folks believe that they have some say over their everyday, day-to-day life. Got it. So when you are describing this to someone who may not necessarily have been thinking in these terms as far as Black folks controlling the institutions and organizations that are significant to our lives, what type of pushback do you usually get and how do you counter that? Because many of us aren't even aware that there could be a world, there needs to be a world where we do have this level of autonomy and self-determination. I think the pushback, in my experience, it actually has a class analysis to it. So 
I think most poor folks or working class folks I talk to, they can probably, you know, teach me political education about daily lives and struggles and the systems that are oppressive to us, right? So I think that's a commonality largely across our folks. I think for some folks, particularly in that, that range of like poor and working class, the issue becomes, can we believe or do we believe that we can create the alternative institutions and struggle against a society that has such a dominant power over us? And I think that's where the fault line is when it comes to folks who are sort of on the bottom rung of power or wealth in a society. I think when it comes to middle class and upper middle class and rich black folks, those folks are comfortable. And so they may not want to get uh, beat up uh, by the police. They want to be treated nice in restaurants, but they're not necessarily looking at the problem the same way anymore, at least, as poor black folks look at the problem. And so I think the pushback I get from those folks when I get a chance to talk to them is more that they have a sort of a top-down analysis and a bootstrap analysis that if they did it, why can't everybody else do it? And then I think you have to have those conversations about how a society works and, again, quite frankly, how capitalism works. Myself, I'm from the projects, and people see me as somebody, because I became a lawyer, as some sort of success story. But I say to them, you know, if you look at me and then you look at the other 30,000 people who didn't make it out, per se, as that, as that term is used, then why would you judge the system by the one that makes it and not the 30,000 that don't, right? So I think there's an idea here that you don't look at and or challenge economic systems the same way as people look at socialist systems or communist systems, where they don't look at individuals, but they look at how the system acts to, to allow folks to sort of fully express themselves. It's only here in America that we refuse to evaluate the economic system and political system that oppresses us in a way that makes us think about how change should happen. Because again, I think particularly on the middle class and upper class level, folks get too comfortable in thinking that because they are the one or two percent who get to go to some nice parties and buy some nice things, that all of a sudden things are fear for the rest of us. It's complicated and it may continually evolve, but I think of it as a zone of freedom in which we're allowed to love without fear and we're allowed to struggle without being put into cages or disappeared. I was talking to an old friend of mine who was a former member of the Harlem Black Panther Party earlier this week on the phone, and he was saying that there's a difference between revolutionary struggle and liberation. And I was like, really? Because I never thought of a distinction between the two. And he said the revolutionary struggle um, was something that would have to address with the entire state. You know, the U.S. is its origins in genocide, indigenous people. Our genocide, our bones and our spirits are in the Atlantic Ocean, right? But that liberation was something we could carve out in our lifetimes in smaller spaces within this land which is built on conquest and enslavement. So we could liberate our communities. We could have freedom schools. We could worship our spirits, our God with dignity. And so that what is tangible in this moment is to struggle for liberation, but what would preserve that liberation so that we don't have to do it every 50 years or every generation. Like our kids, now our grandkids are going to have to struggle after we just spend our entire lifetime struggling would have to be some kind of revolutionary struggle could, that could change the structure so that it could nourish people rather than prey upon them. And a person that does not value themselves gives 
what gives their best away cheaply, like like in love. If you don't value yourself, you'll give your time and your body away to people who don't respect you. So because black people don't have that dignity as much as I think that we could, uh, because we don't value what we have, because we think that we're poor, we, we it, it, so we, we see ourselves as cheap. And so when you see yourself as cheap, you give away what you have. You give away that whole 1.3 trillion because you think it ain't nothing. So everybody gets rich off of black people, except for black people. So what options are available to black folks? What do you think about the idea of buy black at scale, building an alternative economy within our communities? I I don't want to be overly idealistic and assume that we can have this complete separate sort of thing. You know, in fact, that's that's not even healthy. Economic separation is not actually healthy for an economy. Basically, when you think about an economy, I I think that it starts with, with conscious decision making when it comes to money, conscious consumerism conscious investment, conscious conscious production, where you're thinking about where your resources are going. And uh, one of the things we teach students in the Black Business School is how to actually create an economy that's small within your own family, within your own circle. And so the the, the, the three major C's, we, we have the three C's of creating an economy, which is the market for capital, the market for contractors, and the market for customers. I got, you know, I go to you to say, hey man, I, I want to start this business. I know you got an extra five grand sitting around. You looking to build your money. I got this great idea. I make a pitch. You know, maybe you become the investor. I do the work, right? And then you got the market for contractors, which is basically a labor market. So now we got to do this task. Now we got to go hire some people that we can get to do this task. Uh, and, and then the last part is the market for customers. Once we've invested the money and done the work to build a product, if you get people to buy the product, then you win. So really, I think, you know, one of the key solutions for black people is that our children should be trained on economics at an early age. Like they should just understand the difference between being a producer and being a consumer, uh, being an owner versus being a renter, you know, and and, and just kind of how the American economy is rigged in that way. And then at that point, they should be trained on uh, on just the fundamentals of, of what con- what economic consciousness means and what black love, what self-love really means. Uh, because self-love is when you say, I don't want to be away from black people. I want to be closer to black people. And what that does is that that creates uh, a closed, a closed loop uh, sort of uh, ecosystem where, you know, I'm buying from you one day, you're selling to me. I'm selling to you the next day, you're buying from me. And, and we got this thing going in our little circle and we don't actually have to go outside of that unit to make things happen. And, and we've got plenty of consumers, but we've also got plenty of producers. Got it. Cool. Thank you. What are some of the key wealth building strategies that we as a people could participate in in general? Uh, there are three major ways that people get rich in America, uh, and that is through uh, stock investment, uh, st- stocks and bonds, uh, real estate and entrepreneurship. Those are the three ways you can uh, find income, uh, own assets, accelerate income growth, etc. And it all comes back to this word called capital, which every black child in America should know that word by the time they're five years old. Uh, Capital is the foundation of wealth creation all throughout the United States. Um, The stock market is the easiest pathway to jump in uh, because that, and then that's actually been uh, the most uh, impactful, at least for the last 20, 25, 30 years. Uh, The stock market has just been almost like shooting fish in a barrel in terms of, of wealth creation. I've seen people with very little money with consistent stock investment strategies just grow and literally rise up a couple of tax brackets or whatever. And your children should know about uh, all the different ways to make money in this country, not just one, right? When I was a kid, 
Uh, all I heard when we talked about money was go get a job, go get a job. And there are lots of ways to make money without a job. And in fact, the 1%, they don't make their money from jobs. They make their money from uh, from capital gains, you know, from uh, in investments that are paying the money. So uh, I think entrepreneurship is something that every uh, black child in America should know. America and beyond should understand uh, just as a protective mechanism. Um, I think entrepreneurship is certainly something that black men need to understand because black men have always been rejected from the workplace in a way that nobody else is uh, because there's something about who you are, you know, just you're, you're brilliant, you're powerful. You, uh, if you're, if you have ambition, uh, then that makes you a threat, you know? And so, uh, human nature dictates that they're not really going to give a lot of power in those institutions to, uh, dark skinned men who are threats. Rosalind, what does black liberation look like to you? To me, black liberation looks like freedom, freedom to express as an artist, the way I'd like to express on any given day, at any given moment. Freedom to care for each other, care about each other. Freedom of movement, to go where we please, when we please, how we please. And to be able to share knowledge about our culture with each other uninhibited. And how do you see your work as working towards Black liberation? My work with Iconic Black Panther is threefold. And I'm learning, we're learning as we go, right? Um, it kind of develops and then we look back at it and say, wow, this is developing in this direction. But I will say that um, Iconic Black Panther, it's a series of multi-city art exhibitions. We've done three already. The first was in Oakland in 2016. The second one um, in Los Angeles and the third in Chicago. The fourth was to be this year in New York. I say multi-city exhibitions because each exhibition, it's not a traveling exhibition. Each exhibition is different and reflects the city and the city's history with artists, with cultural movements, with social equity movements. Each city has its own personality and those personalities are able to express in the production of these art exhibitions. So I would say that reclaiming our narrative and in this case, the narrative of the Black Panther Party and artists and educators coming together and making space for that to happen would be number one. Number two would be moving into the educational space. We work with uh, educators in every city that we show, we exhibit, and they bring some portion or aspect of our exhibits to their campuses and then build programming around it to engage their students. So I think that's a huge, huge part of Iconic Black Panther that you know, has developed organically from the beginning of us doing these exhibits that I didn't necessarily know was as possible as it is. And then raising money for Black Panther alumni in need. There still are Black Panther political prisoners in prison right now. Some have been in prison over 45 years and raising money to support them and their families. And also when they come out, raising money for support. So those are kind of the three ways I think that these art exhibitions work towards Black liberation. What does Black liberation look like for you? To me, Black liberation looks like a world where one's race in no way is an impediment to achieving all of the things that one's mind can conceive. 
I love that. So where do those limits come from currently? The Gen Zers, the Zoomers on my staff will remind me that race and gender are social constructs <laughs> while also fully acknowledging that they are used to oppress to deny people opportunity. Where does it come from? I think the extreme hoarding of wealth, the extreme hoarding of capital, um, the extreme hoarding of resources, like both natural and human, require there to be an underclass, require there to be someone whose labor uh, is exploited. And Based off of the history of the world, it seems as if darker skinned people suffer most. You can even look at like the caste system in a place like India, where the Dalit are considered the untouchables and it's the dark skinned Indian folks, right? So I don't know what like the original plan was, but there is a long history across the globe of the hoarding of capital requiring violent abuses of dark-skinned people. Absolutely. And so in order to achieve the, the vision of Black liberation that you laid out, it seems this system that allows for this amassing of wealth would have to be um, radically transformed in, in certain ways, right? Absolutely. Um, I also think that it requires people to understand their role in government their role in the public expression of democracy or whatever form it takes wherever they find themselves on this globe. I think it also requires us to understand that our fortunes, our fates are linked. I think it requires us to understand that borders are not real. <laughs> They're man-made, right? And so you can't have a natural disaster in Northern California that is polluting the air and destroying the trees and polluting the water and it not affect people across the border in Oregon and it not affect the people across the border in Canada. I appreciate your um, inclusion of this idea of a linked fate in there. I think that's something that's super important that specifically for Black folks, we've definitely felt in many times throughout history here for um, a number of reasons. I would like to think that that sentiment is coming back in, in some ways. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see the same thing? I absolutely see the same thing. I think that, you know, given the moment that we're in with this pandemic, that, you know, from everything from mutual aid societies, even like susus are making a comeback where people are, you know, sharing money, sharing, saving money together as a community. You know, I can't get through like proper updates on rap beef on Instagram without scrolling against another person who's like started their own organic farm in their backyard. And I love it all. Co-ops and CSAs and sharing food and sharing resources, parents talking about potting up and educating their children together in small groups. There's nothing that focuses the mind like a direct threat to the people you love and your way of life. And so with over 200,000 Americans dead and clarity that our current government and the people who lead it do not care about us. I think that folks are finding ways to take care of one another. And I we see example after example after example of that over the past six, seven months. 
All right, Dr. Rashidi, what does Black liberation look like for you? Right now in particular, I guess one of the key aspects of that is just to feel safe, to be safe and to feel safe in the privacy of your own home. It's to be respected. It's to be treated as a full human being uh, with the freedom to advance yourself in life without any obstacles related to race, gender, et cetera. That's what it means to me. Thank you for that. So in what ways does your work help our community work towards that vision of Black liberation? Well, I'm a historian, and so I give you uh, an African proverb that goes, if you know the beginning well, the ending will not trouble you. What I see in our community is a lot of outrage, justifiably so but I don't see a clear roadmap. And I think that's rooted in the fact that a lot of us don't have a real clear knowledge of self. One of our great historians, a man named John Henry Clark said that the relationship between a people and their history is exactly the same as the relationship between a mother and her child. And so I think we, we are angry, we're outraged, but we don't have a sense of direction and identity based on a clear knowledge of self. And my work tries to do that. I look at things from a global perspective. One of the things I always say is never start with slavery. Uh, If you think your history began with slavery, the best you will hope to be is a good slave. And so we want to, yeah, I know it's maybe overstated, but it's true that we do come from kings and queens. We come from a great place. We have a great lineage and we have to live up to that. That means that the B word has no place in our community, and neither does the N word, that we can't shoot each other down in the street as if it doesn't really matter because we are shooting down royalty. And I think that if those things were instilled in our youth in particular, we would move the ball a lot further down the field. We can obviously unite around the oppression that's carried out on us, uh, but there doesn't seem to be a clear direction leading us elsewhere outside of these moments as far as the masses of people are concerned. In what ways do you think history can contribute to that? You touched on that, but I would like to get deeper. Where should we start, if not with slavery? And how can we use that to uh, help move us forward? Well, as a historian, I would say it's not that we shouldn't discuss slavery. Let's just not start there. And even when we do talk about enslavement, and I certainly don't want to minimize the suffering of our ancestors, let's not forget that we did more than suffer, that we were more than victims, that we resisted. And that's very important. We fought back. We tried to keep the family together. But if we are going to deal with it, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Let's go back to Africa itself, which began looking like you and me. And then we look at the role of African people, because it's not enough to say you were first. It's very important to say what you did, the role of African people in classical civilization. In Africa in particular, we can begin with the Nile Valley civilization, the greatest civilization of them all. Egypt is in Africa and it's always been in Africa. So what we want to do is give people a sense of pride in who we are. And one of the things about ancient Egypt, or Kemet we call it, is that the line of descent was traced to the female side of the family. You actually have female pharaohs. That's a big deal to me for black men to respect black women and for black women to respect themselves and for black men to respect themselves. And all of this is before slavery. So we need to look also at how we fell from the pyramids to the projects. But no people that I'm aware of start at their lowest point. When Europeans talk about their history, they're not talking about the Beverly Hillbillies. 
They're talking about Greece and Rome. They're talking about the finest aspects in their minds of their history. Well, African people have a history that is the greatest that's never been told. And it's up to us to tell it. And just like that, we're at the end of this bonus episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit Black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast on Black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take this into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambeck, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker, and I'm Sid from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out.